Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yes, hello, welcome back to episode 8 now of the Crash MotoGP podcast with the usual suspects, Keith Hewin, Pete McLaren and myself, Harry Benjamin. And I think... If you've been living under a rock and somehow missed the German Grand Prix, you might know what we'll be discussing on today's show. Yes, he's back to his winning ways. Marc Marquez took his historic 11th consecutive win at the Saxon Ring on Sunday. And we'll have all the fallout and debate on that coming your way in just a moment. Also, another strong weekend from KTM, solidifying their consistent front-running pace. And Quartararo, once again, the best of the Yamahas. And despite not winning, extends his championship lead as the Ducatis faded away slightly in the race. Barbagna right at the very end. That, though, plus Moto2 and Moto3 action and a whole lot more coming your way over the next hour or so. But we have to start with our race winner, don't we, Keith? Mark Marquez, his first victory since Valencia 2019, 11 on the trot at the Saxon Ring. I suppose if he was going to do it anywhere, he was going to do it here. 581 days, Harry, since the last win. It's a long time coming. And I think that if I jump forward just the whole race and go to Park Ferme at the end of it, you saw what it meant. If you were in any doubt of what a competitor and, and what this means to the likes of Mark Marquez. His composure was absolutely fantastic in that he held it together. He wanted to cry. There is no doubt about it. I mean, I think people were in tears everywhere in pit lane. In fact, it's the most animated since birth that I've ever seen Alberto Puig. He's never looked as animated as he did at the weekend. You know, Emilio Altamora, another man who knows what it's like to win a world title, and, and he's been around as long as you like. I mean, these are grown men of some stature and some standing around the paddock that all had a tear in their eye because they know firsthand what he had to go through to make that comeback and there was no doubt that everybody did have doubts that he wasn't going to be able to achieve it there wasn't a lot of smart money on him for winning the race yeah a podium perhaps at a track that he's excelled at in the past whether it be you know some would say it suits the honda yeah it does but i think it suits Mostly the, the style of Mark Marquez, that flat track style, as soon as you've got that 25 seconds of left-handers before you drop down the hill at uh, Ralph Oldman Corner, the waterfall corner at turn 11. It suits the Honda. It suits Mark Marquez. Um, doing the analytics like all ex-racers do and like all team people do, the, the, he hit his marks every single point. He did drop the ball. He qualified fifth. He's, he's, in all his previous 10 years, of um, of race wins around there he's done it from pole position this is the first time he's ever done it from the second row <laughs> if you were in any doubt 
turn one when he stuffed it up the inside and barged Quattararo out the way through turn one and down towards turn two into second place behind Alasius Fargo on the Aprilia. I think anybody that had any doubt, it was gone within about five seconds at the start of the race. <laughs> he was going for it. But the markers he hit within a tenth of a second, within a tenth of a second, within, I know it's only a 2.2 mile lap, but I mean, it was really, really outstanding start to finish. It really was. And, and Pete, let's bring you in on this as well, because it's going to give him if anything, a huge burst of confidence. And you could see the uh, the emotion that, that brought him at the end of the race, as uh, Keith alluded to. But it, this is, of course, a track that was going to favour him and Honda a little bit more than the other tracks. Of course, it's more of a unique track to the rest of the calendar. So we're not saying Mark Marquez is going to be back on top and dominating the rest of the season, are we? As you say, you know, this was, with all respect to Honda, this was a Mark Marquez win. Okay, he's on a Honda. There's no doubt about it. That was the bike that won the race. You can't do it on your own. But as Keith was saying, you know, this is this is Mark's track. It's got the corners that he loves. And then just on top of it all, to sprinkle that bit of rain, you know, just when he needed it. I mean, those are those. it's just dream conditions for him. As he said, when that rain came down, he knew this is my day. And he went for it. And all those things together... Um, you know, played into his hands. But a win is a win, and no one would begrudge him anything with all he's been through over the past year, you know, to to come back from all that. The big question, as you say, is what happens next, you know, at Aston this this coming week. Now, Mark's playing it down a bit like he did before the race on Sunday, let's be honest. But he's saying, oh, you know, we'll struggle to get into qualifying too at Aston. It'll be back to to the same situation as we were in before the Saxon ring. Also taking into account the left-handers, you know, they favour the healing shoulder and everything else. But... You know, this weekend will be a big one to see, is this a major breakthrough by Honda? It's obviously going to do the confidence a lot of good for everybody. Or, yeah, he's shaking his head. Exactly. You know, is it just going to be, well, that was Mark Marquez doing his thing. And now we're going to be back to the kind of the, the tough grind that we saw before. Only got to look where the other Hondas were to start with. Uh, Polis Bargaro in 10th place, I think, was uh, pretty indicative of where they are. And Polis Bargaro scratching his head at the end of it. <laughs> He's going down the Cal Crutchlow route. I think Cal Crutchlow, for about five minutes, said, I'm going to take a look at uh, Mark's data and I'm going to do what he does. Nobody can do what Mark Marquez does when it comes to data. It doesn't matter how much you look at somebody else's homework. It doesn't work for anyone else. It only works for Mark. Glad you mentioned the weather there, Pete, because I'd forgotten that just a fraction because that that really, really was the, the nail, wasn't it? That you know, He smacked his... I think it was at the Saxon Ring where... Sometime in the past, I can't remember how many years ago now because they fly by so fast, but uh, it's got to be three years ago when there was a, a, a drying line of about nine inches wide. And he came in and swapped bikes. He was the first one that came in and jumped on a flag to flag bike and rode the absolute roller coaster and just blew everybody in the weeds. He was the only man, albeit nowadays, of course, Jack Miller might have a bit of a go at that because he's a man that can ride a, a damp track, but it was just spectacular how quick. As soon as, soon as it just had that little sprinkle, Marcus went. Bruh! jumped away. Having said that, Miguel Oliveira, winner last time out. I mean, you've got to look at it's quite He's quite an interesting story as well, because I think he's slightly cheesed off with the fact that people are aligning his last three round um, uh, great, great rides um, to the new chassis and he's the new fuel. He's clearly listened to the show then. <laughs> kind of, they're, they're, yeah, they're kind of, they're kind of blaming him uh, that it's it's the new bike, but it's, it's him that's riding it. And he was the by far and away the best KTM, even though Cotteraro had qualified better. And I feel that if Oliveira had qualified better um, and been away with uh, with Marquez, we would have had a proper battle on our hands at the end I of the I think we race. really would have. And that those spots of rain really proved uh, 
decisive and it showed again i suppose that he marquez hasn't lost that sort of split decision killer thinking and able to work with the changing of conditions and actually we've had a really good question in uh from uh tanishk i think i'm pronouncing that right uh who uh, is new to moto gp and trying to understand why marquez uh, took a big lead as soon as the rain fell because even the commentators said you know it was a it was quite uh, good from him to be able to do that. So can you uh, help Tanishk out there, new to MotoGP? Why was Marquez able to really pounce when that weather changed? It's called mental rain. I can't remember where it came from. I got lined up with this saying at one stage, but I only stole it off of Chris Walker from years ago. So mental rain is when you get, when you're riding, uh, when you're driving, if you're driving your car or, or riding your motorcycle on the street and it starts to rain, you get a little bit that just goes onto your visor natural reaction is just to knock it off a little bit just to take your foot off the gas a little bit if you're driving a car but the fact of the matter is in in any kind of racing the track has an ambient temperature or it has it's already up to speed temperature wise it was only 39 degrees track temperature this time of course it had dropped from the 50 that we'd had in qualifying but 39 degrees if it's only very light rain that dries immediately almost on contact on the track so there is no loss of grip in those early moments and no one rides those early moments like Mark Marquez. He doesn't get out of the throttle. In fact, it doesn't matter what you put in front of him. Think back to Jerez when those, what is it, turns 10, 11, uh, round the back, the fast three right-handers at the flat out. Somebody went in the dirt there and chucked all those rocks all across it, and Marquez rode through it sideways, still as flat out as ever. It's like he's just not scared of meeting the almighty. It's incredible how, how he just does not lay off it in those early early moments and that's the killer instinct that you mentioned a minute ago that he has he just is able to overcome that knee-jerk reaction that you have to slightly adverse conditions it's not it's not uh what's the word i'm looking for lunacy we'll use that one it's a bit harsh but it's not lunacy it's calculated mark marquez is a calculator he's a racing machine he knows what he can get away with and generally does get away with it very impressive. And uh, he was able to create a gap to Oliveira for second, who, need I remind everybody, was my prediction last week. So close to getting a point on the board. Sadly, he, uh, he didn't come through. But you know what we call that, Harry, don't <laughs> you? No. The first loser. Yeah. <laughs> Second place is the first loser. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but off the back, obviously, from his win in uh, Spain and then coming here for a second, actually, uh, he said, I think, Pete, didn't he, in, in his interviews afterwards, he actually looked quite disappointed with uh, with Pete, who said, you know, the rain really did stop his chances there. And perhaps if he got past Miller a little bit, a bit sooner, he might have been able to close that gap down. But even then, Marquez was still able to match him pace to pace. Yeah, as you're saying, there was a number of riders, really. Miller, as Keith has mentioned, also Oliveira, that felt they could have maybe gone with Mark. You know, when Mark just went, right, now's my chance, they realised the danger straight away. But they had to get past Alicia Spargaro, you know, to try and stay <laughs> with him. And, and I mean, Miller got by and then Alicia attacked him back. You know, Alicia's fighting for her first podium on the Aprilia. He's not going to hand it to him. So then he, he gets another, you know, a whole lap behind Alicia. Mark just uses that. I mean, this is just a dream, dream scenario for him, for the, other, the guys that are quick in that time to be held up. And so, of course, as you say, by the time Oliveira got through, when the rain had passed, it was about four or five laps, the track's dry again. And now he's got to, he's got to close down Marquez on a perfectly dry track and use all his tyres up. And, and that's pretty much what, what seemed to happen. He was getting there, but 
And then, as you saw, I mean, I was just unsure, will Mark fade physically at the end? I just wasn't quite sure if maybe that might offer a chance. But then three laps to go, and as Oliveira said, Mark suddenly, he burst away again, back up to 1.5 seconds. And Oliveira at that point, you know, quite rightly, just sort of waved the white flag and said, look, three podiums in a row and second place to Mark here is quite good enough, and I'll take that. Mark Marquez had got it all worked out from the start. Second row of the grid. Yeah, he knew that the risks had to be taken. The biggest opportunities were right at the beginning of the race. It's a one-line racetrack. There's only two places you can park. Turn pass, turn one, where you've got that massive kicker that throws you. If you go in there a yard late, you are going in the gravel trap because the kicker just has the back end in the air and causes all sorts of troubles. Only Jack Miller who looked smooth through that particular braking area for, for the entire weekend. Mark knew that the opportunity were there right at the very beginning, and that's why you saw him so very aggressive in turn one off the line. You only just got in the second gear, really. The whole track is one line. It's narrow. It's, you can't do anything with it except turn one and turn 12 down the bottom of the hill. And turn 12, you've got, you got to risk it for a Swiss get down there. It's a proper tricky turn. <laughs> it's not just as easy as ramming it up the inside. Um, you could end up in the gravel there quite easily. So Mark knew the opportunity was at the beginning. He took it straight away. And that's the thing about Mark Marquez. He, that's what it was the Mark Marquez of old in as much as he knew exactly where he could take a massive risk. And, and and make it work for him. And once he'd done that, once he got in front, everyone else had the work to do. You know, it's all very well closing in Mark Marquez by the end of the race. But even if, if Oliveira had got within half a second of him, Marquez had got it covered. That that first, I think it was the first sector, wasn't it? Marquez was absolutely miles faster than everybody else through the, the sector that suits the Honda. Uh, and you weren't going to get past him. You weren't going to get near him, I think, once we got towards the end of I had the same fear as you, though, Peter. I thought that uh, physically, um, and he said, actually, everyone that interviewed him afterwards said, we, we wondered about your physique. Would you be able to carry it for, for the entire race? It's a long old race, isn't it? Um, 30 laps. Uh, but the point being is he said that he did a lot of um, testing the other day. But, of course, you come in after you've done 10 laps and you have a little rest and you go out and do another 15 laps. He did the most mileage in testing recently. But the fact is that that's broken mileage. It's not, you know, 30 laps of full intensity, full commitment, race laps. Big deal. And Saxon Ring is not an easy racetrack. Very physical. And a lot of the riders saying it was very difficult to pass in general, but actually, Keith, and we, we, we spoke about this briefly just before we came on air, and Spiferous has asked the question, uh, saying, well, first of all, congratulations for the amazing job you're doing. I'm a huge fan. Thank you, Spiferous. Uh, question is, uh, you do you think Oliveira could have won if he was better positioned, P2 or P3, when the white flags appeared as well? So it, the job was the job lost in qualifying and then, as a consequence, lost in the race because he wasn't high, high up enough uh, from that? start basically not being as aggressive starts on a friday morning it, mm. every session you're out on the track matters qualifying one uh, sorry free practice one sets you up it's the tracks in reasonable order if it hasn't been raining too badly free practice two usually is a bit hot so tires are starting to slip around so free practice three is probably the most critical session of the weekend you've got to get yourself into the top 10 first going through that uh repercharge if you like the, the the qualifying one where only two riders can go up to join the qualifying two qualifiers and, and therefore the front four rows of the grid that makes it very 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 difficult such good quality now in uh, qualifying one that, that to be one of the favored two it's, it's tricky so free practice three is the most critical part of the weekend and you roll on bit by bit there is no respite in motor gp now it is it's the toughest it's ever been and qualifying is important. You've got to, especially at a track where you've got one line, 
And that's again, it comes back to why I said Mark Marquez, second row of the grid, he knew he'd got to force it to fit. The, the way that he turned right coming into turn one to jam it under everybody. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Worked it out. Oliveira, maybe, you know, Oliveira's a very clever young man and he's, he's you know, coming wonderfully good on the KTM. I mean, it's going to be really interesting when we get to Austria in a, a few weeks' time. That's going to be spectacular to see if KTM have got anything else up their sleeve to uh, to make us um, our jaws drop. But it's about you've got to qualify well on a track like that. You do. And, uh, well, while we're still on KTM, let's go to uh, Miguel Oliveira's teammate, Brad Binder, who uh, showed much better form this weekend. He was quite disappointed with how it worked out for him. Slightly overshadowed, I'd, I'd imagine, by uh, uh, Oliveira last time out. Much better form this weekend, able to make some great overtakes and uh, worked all his way, worked his way up to fourth in the end. And he was really happy with that, Keith. Can I just say, Pete, before I, before you, ju- you jump in, I, I was really pleased to see Oliveira disappointed with second place. <laughs> I just wanted to say that because it is you must understand the breed. You know, second place to Mark Marquez on a track that Mark Marquez has never been beaten and, and he's slightly disappointed. Good on him. That's the kind of attitude that winners have. Um, watch out for Oliveira for the rest of the I year. I think he Sorry even he even said that. You know, if he was going to lose to anybody at this certain track, it was probably going to be Marquez, wasn't it? But um, but yeah, Pete, let's pick up there on that on on Binder and KTM. Certainly looking like you know they're going to be able to to take the fight now consistently at the top with with both riders. They are the the manufacturer on form at the moment, aren't they? They've they've made this big recovery that we've spoken about since those initial troubles at the start of the year and kind of getting the bike to work with the different tire allocation. And uh, yeah, Binder, as you say, not as spectacular as Oliveira, so he's been in the shadow a bit, but but he's been building. Um, you know, this was his first time on the MotoGP bike at Saxon Ring because, of course, we didn't race there last year when he was a rookie. On the other hand, of course, this is, we're talking about a guy who won at Bruno on his first ever visit to, you know, a track on a MotoGP bike. So we know that, that Brad can learn circuits quick, but certainly this is a bit of a unique track and, yeah, you know, he's 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 catching back up. Um, but certainly he's not going to like being beaten by Oliveira. Now, those two have, have come through the ranks together. They've always been rivals at the smaller teams. And there's always a good competitive rivalry there. So I think Brad's certainly looking at Oliveira now and thinking, yeah, you know, I, I, I need to be up there doing that. And you know he's got it in. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like about Brad. <laughs> and the, the fact is that, we, I mean, the, the start line, we have big changes. You know, the weather, 50 degrees in qualifying, 39 degrees when we got to the, the actual race start of track temperature. That's a massive difference. That makes a big difference. There were quite a lot of chart tyre changes that we weren't expecting. Um, front tyres are a major issue there as well. If you know you, you run out of front tyre, 30 laps around a 2.2 track like that is is a lot of effort through through tyres, particularly, you know, like I say, nearly 25, 26 seconds on the left-hand side of the tyre before you turn right again. Uh, that takes a lot out of a tyre. Mm, well... On this subject, though, uh, Max Hunt has uh, brought up Quartararo, and it does take us nicely on to him. But uh, who he's asked you guys, who do you think Quartararo's biggest rival for the championship is now? Because I know Oliveira is uh, 50 points behind, but he is on a serious run. And with the two Austrias coming up, as you alluded to, the KTMs will be so strong there. And the Yamaha, he's thinking the Yamahas will surely struggle. Yeah, well, they will do. Um you've got to look at like Jack Miller. You know, Jack Miller is a man that um, when we get to Austria, the Ducati's not going to be short on horsepower, that's for certain. So, you know, you would expect the Ducatis to be good, good there. So Miller is a, is a threat to Quattararo. What's he, 9, 20, 31 points behind, isn't he? 
point on what I'm looking at here anyway. Hopefully. <laughs> um, you know, it, I, I don't know. Yamaha, it kind of flatters to deceive, doesn't it? I mean, Yamaha seem to be in the same position that, that Honda were in fairly recently in that they got one bloke who's doing the business. How can you have two Yamahas, two factory Yamahas last in a row? I mean, last. You know, I just, Vinales stone last and, and Orbidelli you know, in front of him. And I don't understand why Yamaha are in the, in the difficulties they're in. It, it just seems to be that they, are, they can't put one foot right at the moment. They're lucky that Quattararo is making it perform. But Rossi, you know, Rossi has other problems, I think, in as much as age and where he's going next year and what he's doing. I think finally, I think his eyesight, eyeline has been taken away from the job of riding. And he's starting to look slightly to other things. And that is going to make him slower. No doubt about it. That's what happens. Um, but the likes of Vinales, I mean, you just can't trust him to get a result. I mean, uh, we, we joked about this last week because I, I said that, you know, I always fancy putting a few bob on Vinales because he could come up with a deal. And I always remember a colleague of mine, Neil Hodgson, absolutely slamming Vinales live on TV. And then he goes and wins the race. Because that's what Vinales' talent can do. But for him to be criticising Yamaha hugely at the moment, I mean, the, 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 you know, the Japanese aren't going to put up with that kind of, of, of back talk. Um, and quite rightly, they shouldn't either. He's, he's a rider for sure, but he's part of a team. And they should be working as, as one unit towards whatever they need to get towards. You don't, don't start slamming the bike, slamming the personnel. That I think Vinales has got a major head problem, and you can understand why that might be. He's not getting the results. He's not for some reason something back in back in the paddock isn't gelling. Um, but it isn't going to make people work harder or better for him if he's criticising them. You know, you need to be part of that team and be yep. working together to wherever that is. Don't know. It's a. It's a very. It's actually a very sad story. It makes me feel slightly heavy-hearted to be to be talking like this about someone with his talent and with a team like Yamaha, which normally would work at a racetrack like this. Um, but it just ain't working. Scroll down to Quattararo. Um, he is well, just Yamaha's um, Mark Marquez. Saving grace, <laughs> but thank God they have got Quartararo because looking at the numbers, it's not a it's not a better picture for Vinales either. Quartararo has scored 131 points so far. All the other Yamaha riders combined have 132. But I suppose putting, as you say, Keith, put put Rossi aside. You know, he's got he's clearly got other things going on now, and his focus is shifting. Morbidelli perhaps as well, but. Vinales, that, that's his teammate, and he's coming out with these strong, strong words. You know, he says he feels like feels like he's being disrespected by Yamaha for going around and just being forced to, you know, pick up data. He's not here to be a test rider, but at the moment, he's not here winning either. That bike, I see you kept quiet with that one, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to talk to these guys, of course, on a on a weekly basis. So I'll I'll, I'll get stuck in, shall I? Vinales <laughs> is in the wrong here, in my view. Uh, I think that he has okay. to work with his team. You cannot come out public with this. Vinales, if it was the worst motorbike out there, shouldn't be finishing last. That's a fact. It's not a last place motorbike under any circumstances, whatever the situation is. If it's the worst Yamaha out there, it, with him on it, it's not a last place motorbike unless he makes it that way, which it does seem to be at the moment. I think that it's going to explode at any moment soon. I mean, it can't continue with this kind of criticism and, and the like. I mean, 
if we thought Jorge Lorenzo can get out of order when it comes to um, <laughs> getting stuck into his team, I think we're seeing something even worse here with, with Maverick at the moment. Top Gun is um, all guns blazing and uh, all in the wrong direction, really. This summer break can't come soon enough, I don't think, for Maverick Vinales. I think he needs to step back, calm down, come back and use the absolutely outstanding talent that he's got and hopefully work something out with Yamaha so they all feel like they're playing off the same hymn sheet, maybe. Mm. One thing that seems to be coming up relatively regular, Pete, and maybe this is coming across in, in your chats with them as well, that all of the Yamaha riders, actually, we're hearing it from Rossi as well, but all of them are struggling with this rear tyre and getting grip from it. it, it that's, is this the main problem that they're having? I mean, you could have taken the, the conversations of, of the three Yamahas other than Quattararo and basically just switched the names and, and they all use the phrase impossible to overtake. Wow. I mean, Maverick went a step further, as Keith said, and he took it into the the realm of I'm just data gathering, you know, almost putting the problem onto the team and Japanese and saying, look, you fix it. Incredible for it to be doing that in a race, you know, just data gathering, going around doing that. Um, the incredible thing with this difference that Keith highlighted, which is almost a Marquez Honda type scenario, is Fabio's fastest lap in the race was only the 10th best lap. You know, Vinales and Rossi actually did better, faster laps than him. You know, what, what he showed was this incredible racecraft to not, you know, not have those really slow laps and to keep his average up. And so when you look at that points difference that you've explained, and then you also take into account, you know, the wardrobe malfunction, um, you know, the arm pump problem. I mean, without those two things, Quattro would have a lot more points again. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's amazing the job that he's doing. I think he's flattering the Yamaha to some degree. It's amazing also that when you look at the other Yamahas, okay, Rossi was 14th. Benalis was 19th. So you think, okay, but they're only two seconds apart. So the other three Yamahas were all together right at the back. And so, you know, you you have to maybe worry that at some point Quattararo might hit the kind of problems that the other three are having. That That's maybe your concern if you're Yamaha. On the other hand, he's looking, he's looking like he can manage it. He can cope with these this situation that you always talk about of we're in a group in the race, we can't do our own lines, the front tyre gets hot, we can't overtake. Da, da, da. But Quattararo overtook two Ducatis. You know, he dropped back to sixth. And then he went by Zarco and he went by Miller. You know, two guys that are on factory Ducatis. They're not easy to overtake. He certainly didn't have a clear track in front of him. So, you know, he's doing an incredible job. And I think Yamaha must be so, so grateful that they signed him. <laughs> to be fair, Miller, like, Miller God, did have gotten there. At the end of that, I think, I think he'd, he'd used his tyres up. I mean, I think it was tyre degradation that did come into it a little bit. Maybe the Yamaha. Um, was a little bit neater on that, but I still, I, I still hold. The, the, you know, Fabio Quattararo is getting around whatever the problems are, and you're right, Pete. He's he's making the difference. Um, you know, we, we, what do you expect? We've been on a tech freeze. You know, we're you know, we're on the same kit as we were on last year. I mean, where was going to where was the difference going to come from? It, it wasn't coming from anywhere. It was going to come from minute details that have been changed by the riders and their crew chiefs that are working together. Uh, that's the only way you were going to make any motorbike that, that hadn't got concessions um, better in 2021 compared with 2020. So, you know, 2022 is going to be the lively time. I mean, and with the with the you know restrictions on on testing and the like that we now have to to some extent, it, it, 2022 is going to be. Every year I get asked by a, by a friend of mine who lives just down the road from where you're at at the moment, Pete. He asks me every year, "Can this keep going? Can the momentum in MotoGP keep going? Can we have a better year every year?" 
and we have for, for, for the seven that I've been covering it for, you know, it, it, you kind of think to yourself, well, in recent times, the seven that I've covered it for, you, you kind of think to yourself, can it get better? I think 2022 is going to be, I'm already looking forward to it now, man, halfway through this one. <laughs> I think, uh, well, let's hope it is, but we've still got a great battle going on in 2021. And uh, you talk of differences as well. It was certainly a different weekend, particularly in qualifying for Aprilia and Alicia Spargro. First ever front row for Aprilia, first for Spargro since 2015. And then a really good battle right at the start with Marquez chopping and changing for the lead. But it looked like Alicia ended up suffering more than most when the, uh, the spots of rain came down. But... He'll take a lot of uh, confidence from this, do you think, for Elish? Good one lap man is uh, Elish. You know, he's qualifying, proves that again. Um, he can grit his teeth, bite the screen, as we say in the trade. <laughs> bite the screen and keep the <laughs> throttle open. And um, Elish is brilliant at it. Polish Bargo, his brother's like it as well. I don't know what his mum and dad gave him for breakfast every morning when they were kids, but <laughs> whatever it was, it's two very determined characters that, that kind of thrash a motorbike to, to bits. But, and that's the difference. You know, Elish over race distance is not quite yet able to get the complete package it's not just about wringing its neck and running out of tires by two-thirds distance he, he just doesn't quite seem to be able to get it to the end i thought he was on for the best ever result for for aprilia um he, he certainly deserved it the amount of effort he put in but again you said it earlier on you know he was basically well i won't say in the way but spoiling other people's um more um perfect line shall we say to to, to get towards mark marcus as he, as marcus was disappearing off up in the distance everybody else was having a struggle on that one line track around um saxon ring and um and in the end again he got stuck on that did he get stuck on that seventh place again he did didn't he, he seventh place seems to be about where he's at as a as a, as a race distance um but it's pretty really looking all right be interesting to see if they you know, i mean they've still got concessions haven't they i think yeah they have they've still got concessions so they can still work their way through it it's just Problems with Aprilia possibly is that it's a little factory. You know, it costs a lot of money to come up with new stuff every week. Um, do they have it? Well, Pete, they're, you know, they're going to become a factory team next year as well, a full-on factory team. So surely that means that, you know, they, they're going to be wanting these kind of results a little bit more often. That's right. They're getting their own grid places next year. I mean, I mean, the, the, the team now is a full factory effort. It's just the logistics of, you know, of running the team basically so i don't think we'll see much of a difference as such there but okay you know Aleish, he was he said he was he had high hopes because this wasn't a power track you know and aprilia for the last few years they've been a bit behind with the engine but what this race taught him he said was that they need to just get the traction the power to the ground a bit better he also nearly fell off when the when that rain started falling um i, I don't think it was on tv on the cameras but he said he, he had quite a big moment there and nearly nearly fell off and i think that that exaggerated that gap to mark that suddenly existed so yeah he was a bit disappointed to be honest because you know he goes into every race now hoping for this this long long awaited aprilia podium and uh you know he's gonna have to wait a bit longer but but surely it will come this year zarko's um He's another man that's longing at the moment for his first ever MotoGP win, isn't he? I mean, Zarco's second, you know, second in this championship. Shame he slipped down to eighth place in the end, but um, I thought Zarco was on for a win the way he qualified. Pole position again, looked really, really sharp all the way through it. Again, just didn't work out on race day. The problem is, I say it every week virtually when it comes to racing, that slight change in weather, slightly overcast, just, you know, 10 degrees less track temperature than they've been working with previously makes a huge difference to the feel of a motorbike 
Well, it's like you can read my mind, Keith, actually, because Hamker has Sorry. asked the question. <laughs> he, he's asked the question. I wanted to move it straight on to Joanne Zarko, lest we forget our pulses, because he's asked. Uh, Zarko looked strong qualifying and motivation-wise as well in this round, um, with points closing in on Fabio. But what happened to him in the race? So, Keith and Pete, whoever wants to come on, on this first, was it just a case of once you lose that feel on the bike, especially with the change of conditions... Uh, Added to that, that Zarko, I don't think he felt like he was really on for the win anyway, or perhaps he was just playing down his chances. But, you know, he didn't think he was set for the win the easy way. I mean, Zarko, first of all, he said the Saxon Ring is not his favourite track. He, he doesn't have a great record there, you know. And, and he's, he's a guy that doesn't like to force the bike. He likes the bike to be, you know, set up as he wants. And then you see he's so brilliant at making it work over a race distance. And I think he, he felt in the race that, that maybe the electronics or something wasn't working, perhaps, you know, they kind of hadn't got the bike as he needed it. And as you say, like everybody, the tyres, of course, you know, Keith's explained how hard it is on tyres. And that's why it was so critical. So these small differences that maybe you could overcome in a normal track, they get exaggerated at the end of the Saxon ring. And so he did just drop down a bit. So he was a bit disappointed. Um, he, he, quite interesting, actually, he said, because, of course, the question, apart from Mark and Honda, apart from their own performances, what impact will they have maybe on the championship? And as Zarko said, you know, maybe if he can just, you know, if Mark can keep finishing in front of Fabio, that's not a bad thing. But, you know, also going to who's going to be Fabio's nearest rival, it's got to be a Ducati if you look at the championship at the moment. But it's sort of kind of rotating between the three of them, isn't it? It's Zarko one week, Banyaya, Miller. And the trouble is they're almost taking points off each other, aren't they? There's not one guy... That's, emerged. that's what happened last year. Yeah, and that it looks like they, they almost... Joanne Mir managed to pop, pop that uh, world championship in. Where's he nowadays? I think as well, Pete, that, that you, again, we keep going on about tyres. Don't you feel that Zarco is a little bit front-end sensitive as well, though? When that tyre starts to go away from him, it's something where that, the way he rides a motorcycle, he wants that front to be right where it needs to be rather than sort of um, squidgy. As soon as he gets like that, he's, um, his confidence just slides slightly. Quite literally. <laughs> yeah, he's, he certainly has a different riding style, doesn't he, to the other Ducatis. And he's, you know, much more classical with his his lines through the corners. I mean, another Ducati rider, I mean, Banyaya, you know, what a recovery that was if we're, if we're looking at guys that maybe went in the other direction on the Ducati. I mean, he, he got caught out in qualifying, got held up by other people, not really his fault. And then he had a nightmare first lap. I didn't quite see exactly why he ended up, I think, back in about 15th or something. He was back with Rossi. And then, you know, fought his way all the way through. He had this amazing race pace. He'd worked on used tyres basically all weekend. That was all he cared about. He'd been right down the bottom and he didn't care. Um, but, yeah, you know, he just, he worked his way up. But if he'd, have, if he'd have not had that nightmare first lap, he would have been on the podium, I think. Fourth row of the grid, though, you get into everyone else's trouble in that turn one at a place like this. Turn one, turn two, and then you're stuck in a big, long line between three, four, five. I mean... The trouble is as well with, with Saxon Ring, it's a dodgy old place. You know, like sometimes you can't get it out of your head how close the barriers are there as well. It's a, it's a track that's a bit old-fashioned, really. You, you know, like it, it's great. I love it in the Saxon Ring. There's such history around there. You drive the streets around that, that area. I, I miss driving with Julian Ryder around there, actually, because Julian, you get a history lesson, you know. World War Two, they were coming over this hill and that was over there. And <laughs> this belonged to them and that belonged to them. And then you then then you look at the roadside for the old track, you know where it went and who was killed here and what bend there, and there's a memorial in 
in one it's just a fantastic you just suck it all in it's it's a great place to be you know the old control tower is still there sort of <laughs> on its own doesn't do anything anymore but it's still there um I is love it fair to say that the saxon ring is a little bit like marmite for some people because phil has said easy one for you uh guys why do they still use this go-kart track <laughs> harsh but i can understand why you'd ask um there's a few people that would ask that same question that had to, had yeah. to race it but i don't know i mean when does tradition and and the like overcome safety for me it's all about safety using the track itself as it is fine it might be to some people's not their liking it might be we might spend too much time on the left hand side of the tire rah 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 but if all tracks were the same we wouldn't have a decent series would we the great why, why do we go to le mans le mans for me is one of those tracks where you think why don't we go there but we do and it's part of the part of the deal <laughs> i wouldn't want to go there for 24 hours like some poor beggars have to go round around the bugatti circuit for 24 hours but getting back to saxon ring um for me it comes down to safety and I don't believe turns four and turns five. It's too tight around the back of the paddock where you, where you, you know, the other half of the paddock split in half. Of course, you've only got some of the, some of the teams are in one part of the paddock. Some of the teams are in the other hospitality split. You've got to go through tunnels, uphills, down dale. It's quite good fun from that point of view, but it just seems to be a big race in a small venue. Mm. Well, you know what? Questions have been raised once again over, over safety, not just we've, we've had it in Moto3 and a big discussion about that, obviously in uh, in Spain and before, uh, which we'll come on to Moto3 as well in a second. But Bagnaia saying as well in qualifying, it's almost impossible to do a lap with every rider desperate to get a toe, even stopping on a live track uh, and waiting. And Sherb has asked the question, hi, all. last week, track limits, this week, dangerous riding through the classes. Is it all becoming too competitive and getting a bit cutthroat? What's the fine line between racing incident and dangerous? riding it's not getting too competitive and cutthroat don't ever rule that out of it this is motorbike racing at the end of the day i get fed up with people that want it to be flower arranging that's just too much for me um fact of the matter is is that i don't understand why motor gp riders are looking for a toe um to start with there's no benefit particularly for a motor gp rider on a track this length you're not going to get a toe up the hill for a motor gp bike it's, it's maybe motor three you, you'll get a bit of one but not on a MotoGP bike. It's just, they don't need it as much. It's it's almost that that some riders of even Mark Marquez have decided that they need someone to aim at. It's somebody that they need to just get that final final thousands of a second out of someone else's toe, just to look at them to try and when they hit the brakes, you hit the brakes a yard later. Whatever it is, some riders just need that more now than ever before. Uh, one notable thing, and hopefully we will get Freddie Spencer during the summer break, and hopefully Stuart Higgs as well, if we can get. If we say it enough times, it'll happen. If we say it enough times, I, I, I know Stuart, <laughs> Stuart listens to this, and Freddie clearly does because he came on to me the other week. So um, we love you, Freddie, and I have huge respect for Freddie Spencer, which I hope I gave last time I mentioned his name. But what I have noticed this week, and Peter, bear me out on this one, or, or, or shoot me down, whatever you fancy. Um, I got the impression that decisions were made much quicker. They seemed to come to a decision much quicker. We didn't have that that several laps wait. It seems like, I don't know whether they got more personnel or whatever they got, more monitors. I don't know what it was, but it did seem to me that they could come to a conclusion and generally the right conclusion fairly quickly. I don't know whether I'll go there with the, the Jake Dixon incident. Um, I don't know whether you've got any idea of covering that, Harry, but uh, there are one or two decisions that were were borderline for me um 
But again, you know, when you're sat at home, as I was watching this with one monitor, um, you are not seeing it. You, they, have, they can call up all the onboard cameras, whatever they've got, they can call them up and to, to take a really good look at it. And that generally takes time. Um, but I was, I was pleased that they were making decisions much quicker, it seemed, this week. Well, actually, or was it me? Actually, was, Pete, just before something? you come back in on this, take Alan Duncan's uh, view in mind as well for both of you. What's the panel's view on? He felt that there were inconsistencies, actually, between mm -hmm. classes for the same offence. For instance, why was Mark Marquez not penalised in practice mm -hmm. for setting two fastest laps while he passed seven marshals as they were trackside picking up Marini's crash bike? Well, he's exactly right. Mm. He's exactly right. I mean, there's no defence of that, and I don't think Pete's about to defend it either. <laughs> I just thought I'd drop that in there for you. Only, only if you want an argument with me, Pete. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think the, you know, the lap time itself. I mean, it is possible, as Keith says, they've got you know loads of screens, loads of data. They know exactly what riders are doing where. So it, it is theoretically possible for a rider to do a faster lap but still be slower through that part where the marshals were. You know that so. Um, you know, the, the race direction will look at that. You you don't have to be slow for the entire lap. You just have to be slow where the flags are. Um, Pete, Pete, can I ask you? Do you know if they can demand the data from the team? I think they can, can't they? Because you can see on, on data. You know, it's the same as in Formula One. They demand the data. You know, they they ask for the data from the car. Let, let me let me look and see if you rolled out of that corner or if you did whatever you did. Yeah, I, I think they, they, they certainly can. I think the, the, the issue is that they like to make these decisions quickly during the sessions, don't they? And, and that, you know, therefore they can only go off the cameras and the lap times because they, they don't want things to linger on too much. Um, I mean, on the, the issue of the consistency, this is what came up this weekend was they've got so, you know, heavy on, quite rightly, the, the issues in Moto3. And I think the, the Moto3 guys just sort of read the riot act before the weekend and told, look, you know, we can't, be doing like you're doing in Catalonia, people slowing down, zigzagging, all of that stuff. And then you, you saw, you know, Darren Binder had a bit of a clumsy incident in qualifying and, and really, you know, he, he not only got a black flag, he then got a ride through for the, for the, for the race as well. Now that was quite a heavy penalty, but I mean, they had forewarned, look, we're going to be heavy on you if you do make mistakes. Now, as the question says, what then comes up is, well, hang on, what about the Moto3, MotoGP guys? You know, they're, they're supposed to be the example. You've got them slowing down, clearly. Um, whereas in Moto3, if you slow down for a sector, I think it's 110%, Keith, I'm not exactly sure of it, but if you're 110% slower, I think that's the figure, through that sector, without good reason, you get a penalty. They say, you know, you shouldn't be out there going slowly around. Well, those MotoGP guys were clearly going slower. What we understand from some of the riders, that the MotoGP riders that, that were kind of saying, yeah, this we want something done, is that race direction with MotoGP look at it more as, well, did they disturb another rider? You know, so not only were they slow, but did they actually do something that held up another rider? Now, Bastianini did get a penalty in MotoGP. It was pre pretty rare you do see penalties for, for slow riding in MotoGP. But he did get one because he crossed the path of Petrucci. But all of those riders that were parked on the inside, they didn't get one. But they would have if they were in Moto3. So you can see why people are a bit concerned by this inconsistency. You know, what will it be? We see track limits, you know, nailed down to the millimeter. Zero, zero tolerance, if you like. And then we see, you know, quite a big wide tolerance given for issues of slow riding. So I think 
I think people want to know where the line is. And I think, as Keith, as Keith probably, you know, motorcycle racers, they will push the line. Whatever the line is, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna go to the limit of it and then start crawling under it, over it, and through it. So, you know, once you say, look, this is it. If you do this, you will get punished severely. That's that's what needs to happen, I think. And, and as Keith says, I think the decisions this weekend, certainly in Moto3, they were a lot quicker and people, you know, were, were punished appropriately. Well... No. <laughs> <laughs> the, Darren, the Darren Binder incident when he hit Kelso, I had a bit of, yeah, it was his fault, but I kind of had a bit of sympathy for him there. He was just trying to squirt it up underneath Kelso as Kelso came back onto his line, it looked like to me. And again, I don't know. The problem with it is, is that it can be viewed. For me, poor old Freddie Spencer is on his own in that stewards meeting as a rider of that quality. And he's got two other guys in there. And it's almost like you need two or three riders and an administrator come committee chairman or whatever it is in that, that situation. Because reading a modern day race, modern day motorcycle is different. It's not the same as it was. The, 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 these guys are, it's almost like intuition these guys have when they're making passes, when they're doing what they're doing out on the racetrack. And I just sometimes think that having two old boys and Freddie um, making up the penalties, sometimes they can get it wrong. You know, if you had a good example, Sylvain Gintoli. I mean, I don't know anybody here, that, that, whether they watch it on BT Sport, whether you watch it on MotoGP.com, I don't care anymore because I've not got any axe to grind either way. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that just so for instance, Sylvain Gintoli has joined the BT Sport team as a, an on-site pundit. A, he's there. B, he must be cheap. And C, most of all, He's still fast and he's still current and he still knows all the technicalities going on within that paddock. What those riders are up against, what they have got to make that motorcycle do within the parameters that they've got to play with. Freddie Spencer is a superb motorcycle racer from the past. You know, he is twice the man of Sylvain, you might say, if you're just going to look at world championships and the status that Freddie had at the time that he had it. Uh, it's a situation where Sylvain, if he was part of that Freddie Spencer uh, group, if you like, of stewards, would see things that Freddie's not seeing. I, I see things that an ordinary punter might not see because I've been an ex-motorbike racer. Alongside me, uh, Neil Hodgson will see things before I see things. Beside him, Michael Laverty might see things before Neil Hodgson nowadays because he's more current. And Sylvain Gentoli will see things before Michael Laverty sees them because he's absolutely cutting edge current. It makes a difference. It, it's not, you know, it's, it's having the right people who can understand the nuances that are going on with that motorbike. You know, sometimes you can't, what you see is not what you get. You know, you have crosswinds, you have aero that is affecting the way the motorbike feels. You can't see it when you're watching it on telly, but bloody hell, when you're on the bike, you can feel it. You know, it's, it's moving you all over the place. When you're picking up a, a slipstream from 20 yards behind, it pulls you into a corner, you know, half a mile an hour faster than the one you were actually intending. So therefore you overshoot and run into somebody. There are so many other things that are going on when you're racing a motorcycle or when you're qualifying a motorcycle, or even when you're just riding it around the racetrack, that we can't see or feel. You need someone who is cutting edge current to understand exactly what that machinery is doing. And therefore, what the rider is having to cope with at the time that you're about to issue a penalty to it. Just a thought. I think, yeah, just 
in Darren Binder's defense, in, in a, you know, he only had, a, I think, a minute and 30 seconds to get round. So he was in a rush to get around to do his next lap. That's why you know, he wasn't being careless for no reason, if you like. But I think the bottom line is he caused an accident. It wasn't really his fault. But, but when they're saying, look, we're going to clamp down on anything, and then there's an accident, you could, see, you could understand the black flag. The ride through, yeah, that, I mean, I think that was the surprise, that there was also the follow-up penalty for it. You know, the black flag would have been a, a strong enough penalty, I think, just to make riders know, look, whatever the circumstances, if you have an accident, you know, we're going to come down on you. So you need to make sure you don't. But as Keith says, the, the, the difficult bit is when there's not an accident. When, and that's what you want. You want to prevent accidents. And that's where you need the rider to, to understand, is that a dangerous situation? Was what he was doing silly or was there a good reason? Um, going back to the towing, Brad Binder said, look, you know, I don't, as Keith was saying, I don't follow a rider too closely because you get all the buffeting from the from the bike in front on the wings. It actually can disturb you. You know, so he's not bothered by this towing thing. But it seems like it's also almost become like a psychological thing where a rider, like ghost mode when you play a computer game, you know, they want to they want to chase that shadow around and it helps them go quicker. Um, so <laughs> You're out of touch, Keith. I'll have, a, I'll have a word with my children. <laughs> well, if you liked any of that, stay tuned for our three-hour uh, special coming in the summer um, <laughs> when we discuss all that and more. Um, but we were getting into Moto3 and Moto2 territory now, and we've touched on that a bit. So why not? Let's jump into Moto3, shall we? Uh, and it was the first poll for Salak, but it was Pedro Acosta who got back to his winning ways. He was, uh, we, we were, I think we were getting a bit worried about him. Where's he been? But no, he's back to winning ways. The, uh, the superstar, he can place that bike anywhere he wants, it seems. And all the riders, not happy with that. <laughs> Sounds like Pete's got a Pedro Acosta <laughs> fan out his back door. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Acosta was, was, was brilliant again. But I mean, it was, a, it was another... I mean, I, I, Alcoba mm. was my favourite of the race in Park Ferme when he wouldn't get out. <laughs> I rather enjoyed that. He thought, he thought, I'm not going to give it to Fogier. He's, he's going to stay in there, even though his penalty said that he was going to finish fourth and uh, Fogier was going to get the third place in the end. But Costa's a real deal. He's had three weekends off a bit, hasn't he? Um, and I was beginning to wonder, because, again, I think early on in these round of crash.net um, sessions that we've had, I'm a bit reluctant to say he's the real deal until I've seen a bit bit of space, a bit of time. I use the Danny Kent syndrome where Danny, the first half of the season, absolutely cleared off and had the World Championship won. And then all of a sudden he didn't. Um, and it was almost like he was trying to give it to um, whoever it was. I can't remember now. Um, but it, it doesn't matter. It goes back to 2015. But the point being is that um, Acosta seems to have worked that out. But he will have been good around there anyway because of rookies. I mean, it's a, a rookie's track, isn't it? A, a Red Bull rookie's track. And it's one of those situations where he's got experience of that rather strange Saxon ring. Um, but nonetheless, he is pretty special. <laughs> Give him a little bit. He's pretty special. Um, someone uh, who is not having any luck, and we've already discussed him already, John McPhee, um, was running well and then affected by basically having to avoid an incident early uh, on, which uh, put him out of contention it's just another weekend of yeah but hang on he'd already been the problem is he'd already been mm. shuffled back into that kind of problem you know i think that when john was was out front i mean it was looking really really good wasn't it but all of a sudden he got shuffled right the way to the back of that 
that train and then had to start making moves again. I mean, we've said it before, his luck, he don't have any, ever. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't a situation he could avoid, apart from the fact, perhaps, that um, he'd slipped back and he was in somebody else's bloody accident domain again. I don't know what to say about John. I feel desperately sorry for him. He had his crew chief, you know, Mark Woodage's brains was was taken, a, a, you know, across to Jake Dixon, um, of which there has been massive accolades. You know, Jake Dixon suddenly came up with this, you know, hugely better performance. You know, I, I have no idea because I, I'm not in the garage. So, you know, why all of a sudden Jake was able to pull the kind of performance out that he was, personally and cynically, I just can't see what Mark Woodage would have been able to do with a motorcycle when he's just been shifted across the garage from, from Moto3. I, I can't see. For me, it will have been Jake Dixon, you know, feeling more comfortable with a, a different crew chief, with a new crew chief. Um, conversely, poor old John McPhee again, he's got, you know, the sticky end of the, the wicket. You know, he, I feel desperately sorry for him. He's right in what he said. I mean, he said it publicly as well, which is really unusual for John, that, you know, they stuffed him last year when he was on a promise for a Moto 2 ride this year in 2021. Um, they gave Jake the ride. Nice position to be in if you're Patronus, of course, that you've got, you know, riders that are that good that you can. Uh, push him around wherever you want to push him. And then this year, nicking a crew chief. Don't know, psychologically, that's a big deal. John recovered fairly well from it, <laughs> put in some great laps in qualifying. But Patronus, Patronus seem at the moment, whereas they were the golden team of last year, they put together all that um, from MotoGP right the way through Moto2, Moto3. This year, all of a sudden, it's... Um, they're taking some fairly hefty swings at the ball, aren't they? Certainly. Well, Pete, well, what are you hearing? Is John, well, particularly just coming on to on McPhee and, and that uncharacteristic sort of speaking out as well, they stuffed him. How is he sort of, is he able to stay positive, even though it's very difficult to find any? As you say, more bad luck in the race, but it did seem that, yeah, he'd been, you've got to imagine, like we were all shocked when yeah. Vinales changed crew chief, weren't we? Well, this is changing crew chief, but also taking a crew chief from another rider within the own, your own team structure. So it's, yeah, I don't think anyone saw this coming and clearly John didn't see it coming. Um, and, and it must undermine your kind of confidence, doesn't it? You're, you're you know, whoa, where, what's going on here? Um, he was clearly happy, very happy with Mark Woodage. And, and that's the thing. And then to have to lose him to, to Jake Dixon, you know, Patronus is saying, well, look, the replacement was still the, who was John's data guy. He's saying, look, he's been a crew chief before. He wasn't left with somebody that had never done the job. And, and as we saw, you know, John had a pretty competitive weekend. Um, but it also clearly underlines that they really, really want Dixon to step it up a level. And is the background to this that potentially there is a MotoGP ride coming up next year? And as we've said before, who do you put on that? There's, there's not many obvious choices. You know, is this another sign that they're really, they're looking around and they're wanting to really see Jake maybe step up? You'd be no surprise. Dorna would like to see a British rider in MotoGP. The team would like to to, to promote from within, you can imagine. We, we had this report in Malaysia that, that Razan Razali had maybe said that basically Rossi wouldn't be staying. Then, then the team denied that that's actually what he said and he was just talking sort of vaguely in the future. Um, as as Keith said on Twitter, they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, you know, so it, it, it seems like this is not just an isolated, you know, all of this could be connected in some way, let's say. 
100% it will be. Rafael Rosali is a smart operator. I mean, he was the CEO at uh, Sepang for years and put Sepang on the map. He put Sepang money behind bikes rather than F1. You know, he's responsible for a lot of manoeuvres, Rafael Rosali. I know he doesn't do the circuit now. He's, he's now mainly running the race team because it's a big enough job of its own. But you can be fairly sure that there's a pathway. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Rafael Rosali was given a poison chalice. You know, you've got the biggest name in the entire world of motorcycle racing. Suddenly hasn't got anywhere to go because Quattararo is going to the factory team. Where do we stick our icon? Oh, we'll, we'll put him in the independent team and uh, down at Patronus. So poor old Razlan Rosali and, and Joanne Stigafelt and the, and the team, having built their team on youngsters and looking forward to doing more of that, they've suddenly got this guy that, well, it could have turned out if he loses, it's down to the team. If he wins, it's down to Valentino Rossi. That's a scenario that always is not great from a team management point of view. Moving back to the crew chief situation, I wonder whether Jake had anything in there to do with where, how much that was discussed because these things behind the scenes are quite often, it quite often leaves a little bit of bad taste within a team as well. If, you know, did Jake have anything to do with that? I wonder. I doubt because I think Jake is not the kind of guy that would go poaching someone else's crew chief. Um, but then again, he clearly said, okay, I'll have some of that when it was offered to him. Is that as bad as poaching someone's crew chief? I don't know. The circumstance, if you go back in the day, I mean, how about the, the Colin Edwards, uh, James Tosin situation, Hervé Poncherol's team at uh, Tech 3, when when James was massively cheesed off with the fact that he didn't think he had the right side of the garage. And so Hervé being Hervé with a good old French shrug, <laughs> so, okay, you can have them all. So basically, JT ended up with Colin's side of the garage and Colin ended up with JT's side of the garage. As it turned out, Colin still kicked JT's ass, which, which, you know, obviously didn't go the way that um, that JT was perhaps expecting at the time. There will be other reasons behind it all, of course, and uh, and if JT listens to this, <laughs> I'm going to get into terrible trouble for Tate. <laughs> he's a good mate of mine, <laughs> but it's kind of one of them ones where it can go wrong. I think is what I'm trying to say. You can, if it's your problem not the bike or the crew chief's problem. It's only going to be a short-term fix. We are now going to see at Assen, which is a great racetrack, and Jake will go well there or should go well there. Um, it will be interesting to see whether the upturn in performance from Jake Dixon is carried through to, to Assen. Fingers crossed, I hope it is. I obviously hope that, that John McPhee wins a race and basically says, To anyone just listening, uh, <laughs> go and watch the YouTube video because you're going to want to see that. <laughs> right, no, what I just said was very he's nice. Going we'll go on then before we move on and talk about Assen. Let's touch on Moto Two as well because we're there pretty much. Uh, it was Ralph Fernandez on pole, uh, but uh, once again, really pushing Moto GP bound teammate Remy Gardner. Gardner though able to take a historic third win as Fernandez couldn't quite keep the same race pace and ended up sliding off the track. It was a very uh, good Happy Father's Day uh, for Wayne, as I saw you tweet there, Keith, over the weekend. Uh, Remy Gardner, do it. it's all coming at the right time for him, isn't it? It's Happy Australia Day. Advance Australia Fair was played out all over the place. You've got Jack Doohan, son of Mick Doohan, winning the Formula 3 race. Yep. You've got Ollie, Ollie Bayliss winning the Australian Championship race. And you got Remy. Absolutely. Yeah, I was holding this conversation in the car on the way. <laughs> Not surprising for you guys. You'll laugh at this. Me and Julian Ryder were having a good old yap this morning like we do on a Monday. <laughs> we are like a couple of old people over the fence, you know, like this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Julian and I were, were singing Remy's praises. But if you go back 
to that crash that he had in Austria, wasn't it? When I think Shireen and then I can't. No, actually, no, wasn't it Hereth? Wasn't it Hereth where he got the bike in the back coming out of turn one? I seem to remember. Anyway, his his season started off well. Then he got a right old clattering, and then it went badly from that point on. He couldn't stay on the motorbike. Julian and I were speculating about the 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 Gardner gene, you know, like Wayne Gardner. Probably you wouldn't have him as the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, but he knew how to ride a motorbike, any motorbike. He could ride a garden gate. Wayne Gardner was proper old school tough and great on a motorbike. Didn't matter if a fairing was hanging off of it, his foot was hanging off of him, he'd be able to ride it well. Remy is a much more subtle. He's obviously got the Gardner gene. He's, he's obviously quite tough um, and he's definitely got racecraft in him. But right now, I mean, I'm seeing things in him that I wondered whether we would. He's looking brilliant. He just looks brilliant. But if I may just have a little bit of caution underneath there, so did Sam Lowe's at the beginning of this year. It's a game that can change. It is, and Pete, Sam Lowe's there. Poor start, but happy with the top five on top of that. But Gardner stealing the show. Yeah, exactly. As we kind of mentioned previously, there'd been that competition with Fernandez, his teammate. You know, this new rookie star comes in, and this is, you know, this was supposed to be. And it looks like it could well be Remy's big year, but it was like, hang on a minute, now this guy's winning next to me. You know, he's not supposed to be winning till next year or the end of this season. And and it seemed like that competition between them was growing also because the, the Aki Ayo's team, they just they almost seem a level ahead of everyone, don't they, at the moment. So so that sort of amplified the, the, the attention on these two guys. And and Remy had just sort of put a put a stop to Fernandez's momentum in the past couple of races. But it seemed like coming in that, that Fernandez is sort of his focus had gone off just instead of just living the dream and thinking, you know, wow, I'm winning as a rookie. He, he, he's looking more at Remy and, and trying to beat Remy, you know, and, and seeing that competition. And it, I don't know how much this is, this actually happened, but it kind of looked like Remy just played his tactics in terms of, I'm going to push hard now. And if you're clever, you won't try and follow me <laughs> because, you know, I'm going to go for it. And, and Fernandez, I think almost, panicked and instead of thinking a bit like a rookie and saying look this is my speed a bit like a costa perhaps would have would have dealt with it in some of these other motor three races where he wasn't winning but he was still finishing i think fernandez maybe got a bit flustered when he saw remy put in this really really fast pace early on when he took the lead and remy said catch me if you can fernandez maybe fell for the bait and, and down he went and you could see he was angry afterwards you know that he knew I shouldn't have done that, you know, because probably Remy at that pace wouldn't have, you know, he couldn't have gone the whole race at that pace. I don't think, given, as we're saying, this is a really heavy track on the tyres and things. So I think there, there was a bit of, bit of as Keith was saying, you know, Remy, Remy's clearly a thinker, you know, and, and I think that there was some tactics going on there with, with pushing early and let's see how the guy behind deals with that, that unexpected pressure of just raising that pace early on. And I mean, it worked out perfectly for, for Remy because, when Fernandez fell, he had that huge lead and that was it. It was race over. Well, Fernandez on pole. That's the fastest pole lap of a Moto2 bike round there. Remy Gardner set the fastest lap ever round there on a Moto2 bike. Um, you've got to say that the team, and if you add a Costa into that, as you've already said, all on the IO KTMs, no wonder KTM want to keep IO for another five years, having signed another deal with um, Aki IO's team. But I think significantly for me, and I think this is a, we can roll this back into the, the Jake Dixon, John McPhee situation, if you like. Aki Ayo is a brilliant manager. He's a brilliant man manager. He's brilliant at 
having the structures of his team to work in the way that they work with their riders and with their data engineers and so on and so forth. And I think that's, there's no mechanical difference. It's not, it's not mechanical. They don't have any advantage anywhere other than the fact that the way that they are structuring their team. And I think that's significant to say something along those lines. Everybody out there pretty much is on exactly the same kit. If you're running a Calyx, you're running a Calyx. Of course, for anybody listening that, that think, well, it's a KTM, it's a KTM badge, but it's a Calyx chassis. Um, when KTM decided not to develop their Moto2 bikes a couple of years ago any further and concentrate everything on their MotoGP bikes, um, KTM allowed Akiyo to run Calyx chassis with a KTM badge. So it's a Triumph engine in a Calyx chassis called a KTM. <laughs> um, but, the, but the point being that, that Akiyo is a great manager, both on a personal level and on a team level. I mean, the Finn is a, a, a man that you kind of, well, you speak in hushed tones when he's around. He's a, he's a bit, you know, Buddhist-like. He's got some kind of Zen about him that, that works so well with his team. And I, and I think that that is what may just be missing when you're making knee-jerk reactions back at Patronus at the moment. I think that's the, the situation. They haven't found that level of calm through the team that uh, Io and his team have managed to achieve. And therefore, Remy, who I heard someone label him as sensitive in commentary of the weekend, which um, I've never had the impression that he's sensitive. He sounds like a, a little softy, but he, you know, he's not. He's himself. Remy Gardner is his own man. He's not like his dad. I really like Remy Gardner. The few times that I've had to talk to him, I mean, he's, he considers what he's going to say. He doesn't just fire from the hip like Wayne would do. But back in the 1980s, you could. You could say anything you liked and, and it didn't really matter. But nowadays in the, in the, the world that we live in, particularly youngsters, you know, they are growing up with a, with a completely different world in front of them, both in their vocabulary, in the way that they deal with themselves, in the way that they think, in the way that, you know, you must react to certain things. It is a very, very difficult world. And so there, Remy, Remy's just, you know, a man of today rather than, than perhaps like his dad of the, of the 1980s. And me, I love the 1980s. <laughs> Can't remember that. Um... <laughs> we wouldn't have had you in. <laughs> right then, we've got, let's um, let's leave that there for now in the Saxon Ring chat because it gave us so much chat about. There's always more we could talk about, but we are up against the clock. I am afraid because we also because it's back to back weekends. We've got to go and have a look at what's happening this weekend. A return to Assen in the Netherlands, Keith. It's your time to shine. Give us your insider's guide. And actually, before you talk to us about the track as well, we talked about Vinales earlier on. Of course, he uh, won here last time we were in Assen. And it's a Yamaha kind of track. It should do the business there. I mean, it's it's one of those wonderful racetracks that was a road once upon a time. It's only two-thirds as good a track as it was in the 80s. Of course it was, like everything. <laughs> it's been cut short. And they made the Mickey Mouse part that um, that just brings us back to the old track. So you go past the start and finish, it's a little short straight now compared with how it was. But I won't be negative because it is still probably one of the most wonderful racetracks on the calendar, particularly the run into the start and finish area, that final chicane. If there isn't going to be some pushing and shoving and bumping and barging down there, then it isn't Assen of old. And we, we've had some great races there and, and some iconic races there and some some disasters there. I mentioned Colin Edwards a little bit earlier on. I mean, he's he's probably the biggest disaster there because he didn't win a race and that was his chance. And he blew it last corner, last lap, um, which was, 
I can't imagine how you can live with that. I think it would be, well, I could ask Steve Parrish, of course, he had exactly the same thing in the British Grand Prix, but that probably was one thing worse because it was his home Grand Prix. But anyway, I, di <laughs> I digress slightly. Um, Assen is a great racetrack, always gives us great racing, should suit Yamaha. But I just, again, I think that there is no motorcycle that's head and shoulders above each and every other one of them nowadays. That's, that's the wonderful thing about MotoGP. We are, they're, they're all capable. Suzuki disappointed me in, in Saxon Ring, but I would expect it to be good in... Uh, I think they were quite happy with the way it ended up, but I, I mean, personally, I thought the Suzuki was going to be better around the Saxon Ring. It was only a guess. It didn't work. Um, I think Assen could be the bike. What did surprise me about Suzuki is that Mia is clearly not on it like I expected him to be this year. Uh, Rins comes back after clobbering the back of a Dorna truck while using his mobile phone um, and a broken wrist later, comes back and he's the faster of the two. Now, what's going on there? That's a, a WTF moment, isn't it, really? I mean, what's going on? I don't understand it. it so again, Suzuki Rins at Hassan, maybe. But for me, <laughs> well, hang on, hang on. We're not there. We're not at the predictions just yet because, yeah, I thought you might. But it, it, it is, you know, there is. We've well, we've said it again and again. You know, there there is no one head and shoulders above the rest. At one point, we thought maybe Quartararo might start to edge away with it. That hasn't happened. He finished third here in 2019. Mark Marquez now, I, I with bated breath. He came second here in 2019, but the Honda is struggling. We said the Saxon Ring perhaps is, you know, a very unique circuit. But Pete, what are your thoughts on that? You know, Suzuki back into the frame here again. Could we see someone else? We can't rule out the Ducatis. You can't rule out Miguel Oliveira. Definitely not. No. Um, as you said, look, what, eight races in, five different winners, four different bikes. I mean, you know, it's, it's been a... It, crazy start really isn't it and it makes it so hard to predict and then throw into that that Assen traditionally has this changeable weather just yep, to add to that it was, so that would play into the hands of people like Marquez obviously but also Jack Miller so you, you know I think it is currently baking hot in Holland but or the Netherlands but I'm not sure if that's going to be the case this weekend but yeah usually you get rain at some point it's almost guaranteed um, and, and yeah so that plays into the hands of the riders that we mentioned there so you know Suzuki, yeah, uh, Mia, Mia doesn't look a happy guy. You know, every, every time the cameras see him in the pits, he, you know, last year he was the, the picture of calmness and, 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 you know, focus. And you can see that it's, it's maybe getting to him that, that he's not one of these riders that has won the races yet. I mean, Suzuki and Aprilia are the only guys that now haven't won a race this year. Not many people would have predicted that, that Mia is the reigning champion. You know, we're at the halfway point, would, would not have won a race. So... I think he realizes what's the gap now it's 46 points i mean that's big you know to be at the halfway point of the season needing basically two race wins and quattararo not to score just to get on terms with him you know it's it's getting close to panic time dare i say it in terms of the cha the championship challenge rins is the faster guy but rins is you know self-destructed unfortunately so many times that i mean he's out of the championship so it's it, it you know Anything can happen, as we always say, and, and certainly the Suzuki back in 2019, I think Mia and Rins were both up there early in the race or at some stage. Uh, I think I think Rins might have actually fallen while leading on the first lap or something or quite early on. They, certainly they were competitive, so they should be good there. As Keith said, Quattararo, he was up there and at that time he was on the old bike. You know, he, he wasn't even 
on the latest Yamaha when he was when he was uh, fighting and on the podium there with Maverick. So, yeah, I mean, well, if we're going straight, it's all to- about the weather. It's all about the weather. Exactly. The weather would change everything. And I'm not sure, actually, on the tyre allocation, we don't really hear before the event, but I don't know if it's, you know, whether they've radically gone with a different selection to 2019. Obviously, the tyres have changed a lot since then. We saw at Saxon Ring that there was the hard rear from 2019, and no one wanted to touch it, did they? You know, they, they Michelin bought that just because they said, look, we haven't raced here for a year. So just so you know, this is the tyre that, that, that we used last time we raced here, just in case. But Rossi explained, you know, Rossi likes hard tyres, but the tyre technology has moved on. He said, it's fine if everyone uses that, but they won't because the other tyres are quicker. The medium and the soft are, are quicker and using these new sort of casing that they've got. So he couldn't use the hard tyre from, from 2019. This is another track that wasn't on the calendar last year. So maybe there will be one tyre from 2019. So then they're down to maybe a choice of just two tyres for the back. Who knows? You know, it's it's... It, it's so hard to predict, you know. All you know is, as Keith says, Quattararo seems to be up there every weekend, barring, you know, leather failures and uh, an arm pump operation. So you've got to imagine he'll be up there and, and everyone else is just going to chase him at the moment. And, of course, we never mentioned Valentino Rossi, the last place that he ever won a race. And if it rains... Who knows? Who knows? I mean, we can dream, can't we? We can dream that Valentino will go out into the summer break. And, of course, the summer break is an important psychological point in the year as well. He who goes out on a high into the summer break has got less psychological problems than any other rider, and that's the issue. You've got to really get through that summer break and come back positively at the end of it. And we're going to have a short season. I I cannot see, with the way this pandemic is picking up, I cannot see all of the rounds, certainly in the Asian Pacific area. I just can't see how we're going to get to that. But Dorna will have a plan because they're brilliant. Um, So we'll wait and see regarding that. But... I've got a definite Miller feeling for that. Are you, lo- are you locking that in? Got a definite. We're well, here now. It's one of them ones where I, I, I'm kind of, yeah, because he's won at Aston before and he, he kind of don't mind the conditions of it. But you know what? Zarko could overcome. This could be the first win for Zarko. I'm standing these up for you guys. You can pick whichever one you like at the end of the day. I'm going to go Miller. Miller. I'll lock that okay, in. I'll lock I'm Miller in this one. Miller. Yeah. Uh, go on then, Pete. You can go second. M-I-L-L-E-R. Yeah, just, oh, I thought there was a, a third L. Okay, sorry. Um, Pete? Who, who shall I go for? I, I shall leave you with the, the obvious one. But no, actually, I'm going to go with... Uh, actually, I'm going to go for the obvious one in a way. I think I'm going to take your Oliveira pick from last time. Yeah, I, I think pick. that... He, Mind you, he's just that leaves a nice one for our friend in the middle there, doesn't it? That's a lovely one. To, you've got Quattararo yeah. sitting there waiting well, for you. Uh, yes, well, uh, Harry Pete, I think you were gonna. I was gonna go for Oliveira because uh, I, you know, I was so close to scoring a point. I'm still on zero points in our leaderboard here, um, so I think you've left me no choice really. But I'm gonna lock in Fabio Quartararo. It would be rude not to, I think, and rather delusional. Um, so Quartararo is uh, my choice. So to recap, Keith's gone for Miller, Pete Oliveira, and I've gone Quartararo, and we'll come back this time. Think of the pleasure you're going to get here, Harry, if you win this, because yeah, me and exactly. Pete had guesses You had plenty you. of time. <laughs> but, hey, this is MotoGP in 2021. You cannot rule anything out. Um, let's just uh, keep up to date with the championship standings. I think MotoGP, obviously, it's Quartararo leading the way with 131 points ahead of Zarco on 109. Miller is in third. Banyaya, no one said him, in fourth. And uh, Joan Mir in fifth, rounding out the top, top 
top five with 85 points down in Moto2. Remy Gardner, of course, leading the way with 164 points to his teammate Ralph Fernandez on 128. Then comes Bezzecchi, Sam Lowe's in fourth, and Fabio Di Giantonio, who, of course, will be uh, making his way to uh, MotoGP next year on 73 points. And then Moto3 is Pedro Acosta leading the way after that win at the Saxon Room with 145 points to Sergio Garcia with 19, Massia third, Antonelli is in fourth, and Fanati is fifth with 64 points. Well, I think that just about does it for today's show. Keith, Pete, thank you as ever for joining me. A brilliant round in Saxon Ring. We don't have to wait long at all until we get more two-wheeled action underway because it all kicks off yet again in the Netherlands for Aston as we return there after having not been there for a year. So I think everybody very eager to, uh, to get back there on track. Can't wait for it. Make sure you get involved as well. Send us your questions as ever. We'll put tweets out as well. Get involved. Just search Crash MotoGP on Twitter and stay up to date. In the meantime, all the latest news, breaking headlines on Crash.net. Make sure you read all of Pete's articles uh, and uh, we'll be back same time next week. Make sure you keep subscribed. Just search the Crash MotoGP podcast wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.